Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wong, and today we're doing my short response to Star Trek Discovery's eighth episode of its fourth season, titled All In. As usual, my responses take the form of three short segments, Think, Feel, and Question. Think. In the episode All In, Book and Tarka, and Burnham and Owo, travel to Haz Mazzaro's Karma Barge, a seedy casino that is known for dealing in less-than-sanctioned wares, in search of purchasing some isolinium. Book and Tarka want the isolinium so that they can build an isolytic weapon that will take down the DMA whereas Burnham and Owo intend to take that precious resource off the market to stop them. After a rollicking adventure around the casino, each pair racing each other to scrounge up enough gold-pressed latinum to finish the deal, it all comes down to one final match of Leonian poker. But before the cards are dealt, Burnham says... For a, uh, a gamble this big... Shouldn't we each get a chance to verify the quality of goods? Fair enough. You first. And upon examining the isolinium, the casino boss, Haz Mazara, asks Burnham, Want a tetronic dosimeter to measure potency? No, thank you. <laughs> isolinium has the same metallic luster as pyrite, and its crystals are equant, meaning they have roughly equal dimensions. When cut with impurities, opacity and shape are affected, so... Learn a lot of useful things as a courier. This is the real deal. Later on, we find out that the real reason why Michael Burnham wanted to inspect the isolinium was so that she could plant a tracker on it in case Book wins the poker match which he ends up doing. So this was a super smart move and was just another instance of the sneaky brilliance that we've seen Michael Burnham exhibit over the years. This particular one reminded me of how Burnham slipped the USS Defiant data into Ash Tyler's pocket when she hit him on the transporter pad of the ISS Shenzhou before beaming him into space, making it appear as if she'd killed him. But in actuality delivered him, along with the stolen data, to the USS Discovery. That was all the way back in Season 1 of Discovery. But back to Season 4 and the episode All In. Even though evaluating the Isolinium wasn't Burnham's primary motivation, that doesn't mean that she didn't do a good job of appraising this valuable mineral. The act of inspecting and identifying minerals by eye is actually a time-honored tradition in the field of geology. There is a whole science of mineral classification based on mineral characteristics that you can observe with your own human senses. Mineral species are technically defined by what atoms they contain and how those atoms are ordered. In other words, by their chemical compositions and their crystal structures. But because composition and structure on the microscopic scale often propagate to macroscopic attributes, you can often do a really good job of recognizing a mineral just by looking at it. 
Although isolinium isn't a real mineral, it stands to reason that it could be identified using the same principles. In general, the characteristics to look for when trying to identify a mineral include visual attributes like its shape, luster, color, and transparency or opacity, but you can also look at how a crystal breaks, how it cleaves or fractures, how hard it is to scratch, and what kind of powder it leaves behind when rubbed against the hard surface. Other qualities that are readily observed include density, magnetism, and taste. So let's return to the moment that Michael Burnham sees this isolinium. She uses three of the aforementioned specific tactics in her examination. First, she notes that isolinium has the same metallic luster as pyrite. Luster is the term that mineralogists use to describe how a specimen reflects light. Is it shiny or silky? Earthy or waxy? Glassy or pearly? Pyrite is a real-life mineral that you may also know as fool's gold, because it resembles gold in its color and luster, but is not related chemically at all. It's actually an iron sulfide with a chemical formula FeS2, and it's pretty ubiquitous on Earth. It forms, among other places, in hydrothermal systems, and has also been found in meteorites. The fact that pyrite and gold can be mistaken for one another based on their luster is an excellent example of why you need multiple kinds of observations to pin down a mineral's identity. Apparently, isolinium also shares pyrite's luster, meaning Burnham needs to make further observations. So she goes on to say that isolinium's crystals are equant, meaning that they have roughly equal dimensions. Equant is the correct real-life scientific term here, describing crystals that have blocky, stout forms. This crystal shape might be able to distinguish isolinium from pyrite, which usually forms cuboid crystals. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, isn't a cube equant if the definition of equant is that the edges of the crystal have the same length? Well, that's true, but it's a very specific form of equant, one with exactly six faces that meet at right angles everywhere. You can also have an equant tetrahedron with four faces, or an equant dodecahedron with twelve faces, and so on. Finally, Burnham says that when isolinium contains impurities, the opacity of the mineral is affected. This is also common with minerals here on Earth. You might be surprised to hear that red rubies and blue sapphires are actually the same mineral. They're both corundum, an aluminum oxide with the bulk chemical formula Al2O3. Pure corundum is transparent, but when it contains impurities, it'll change color. Rubies are red because of the presence of trace amounts of chromium, which has substituted for some of the aluminum in the chemical structure of the mineral. Sapphires, on the other hand, gain their blue tint from other impurities, like iron and titanium. 
watching Burnham science out the veracity of the isolinium crystal, or at least pretend to so that she could buy time to plant the tracker on the isolinium, transported me back in time to my college geology class, where we actually had a test where we were presented a tray of minerals and had to identify each one without any fancy technological equipment. No microscopes, no spectrometers, and definitely no tetrionic dosimeters to help us out. Just our hands, our eyes, a hand lens, and, yes, our tongues. You see, one incredibly powerful way to tell that halite is indeed halite, instead of quartz or calcite, is to lick it. If it tastes like salt, it's halite, because halite is sodium chloride, it's table salt. <laughs> you know, I have so many funny memories of that geology professor literally ordering students to lick rocks that they picked up off the ground on our field trip. I mean, everyone was obviously hesitant to do that, until he was practically screaming in our faces, PUT YOUR TONGUE ON THE ROCK NOW! <laughs> oh man, college geology was just a hoot. Kind of makes me wonder what isolinium tastes like. Feel. After the isolinium is fully vetted, a high-stakes poker game ensues. To quickly dispatch of their emerald chain opponents, Burnham and Book team up just like the good old days, showing exactly how that pair still has so much chemistry together. This scene is so beautiful, because it made the pain of losing the poker game to Book all the more painful. With the stakes so high, it's easy to hate some random person, but it's heartbreaking to lose to someone you love. Man, I don't envy Burnham's star-crossed love life. I mean, first it was Ash Tyler, who turned out to be a Klingon sleeper agent who didn't even know it himself. Now it's Book, who's a genuinely great guy, but who swings completely the other way when it comes to dealing with the DMA. I'm rooting for these two characters to get back together in the end. But I would also understand if this burnt bridge could never be rebuilt. And this poker game was one final bittersweet reminder of what they had and what they could have been. Finally, my question. At the end of the episode, we learn the DMA's true purpose. It's a harvester of boronite for an unfathomably advanced species who reside beyond the shores of the Milky Way. Now, we know from Star Trek Voyager that boronite can be used to synthesize the omega molecule, the most powerful substance known to exist in the Star Trek universe. In my response to Season 4, Episode 2, I asked the question, is the DMA alive? Basically, I speculated that perhaps the reason why the DMA moves so erratically is because it was hungry. I'm going to claim victory here, 
I mean, the DMA might not be a living organism in the traditional sense, but one could argue that it is the extension of hunger for a collection of beings whose energy resources feed on the omega molecule, and, in turn, on boronite. Thing is, whomever the DMA's creators actually are, they must wield such enormous powers that they probably operate on a scale of existence truly alien to our own. I'd seriously doubt that they'd consider anything on our level of life even worthy of moral consideration. Otherwise, they wouldn't have designed a device that could accidentally cause such wide-scale harm to ships and planets. To them, we must be as insignificant as flies, or ants, or maybe even amoebas. So given this new information, my question now is, will the Federation's efforts to seek a diplomatic solution with Species 10C actually succeed? Or will our heroes please fall on deaf ears? Ears unable to hear us, just as we would not be able to comprehend the protests of pigeons or plankton. This kind of thing is such a fascinating philosophical science fiction conundrum, and I'd just love to hear your thoughts on it. So if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I. And that's a wrap for today. Enjoy Episode 9 of Season 4 of Star Trek Discovery. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay curious. And I'll see you out there.